Die Panda Die. I'm Liz. And I'm Maddie. Join us as we follow two geeks with otherwise worthless biology degrees as they use evolution, development, and animal behavior to explore the weirdest aspects of the natural world and our own. So you know, Liz, as I was trying to find what in pop culture these days is a good segue into what we're talking about today. So I want to talk about bees today. Today we're talking about bees. And an excellent pop culture reference to this is the very, very popular play franchise, Hamlet, which is all about to be or not to be. That's relevant in modern, right? That is relevant in modern. It's technically written in modern English, and that's about as far... Oh, yes, it is technically written in modern English, and I know this because I was also an English major. That's very good. And see, that's a much better reference than the one I was going to bring up. So as I was looking for bees, all I could find was stuff about the Bee Movie, which was a 2007 film by Jerry Seinfeld. And you know, it actually ends up being a horrible segue because not only is it a weird movie that everyone's strangely obsessed with at the moment because memes, it makes a very, very, very bad segue into this episode I wanted to talk about. Can't you make a better meme af out of like Alec Baldwin in The Boss Baby? See, well, actually, I have a long-running discussion with someone um, on the internet, uh, just just talking about you know Jerry Seinfeld and Alec Baldwin. If they were they were they conspiring together, were they both seeing into the same alternate bizarre reality? Who who came first? Who inspired the other? It was like Inception. They went into one of those shared dream things. Only instead of an Inception, where oh, dreams have like fortresses you have to break into and secrets you have to steal and you have to go through the layers and fight the dudes. Real dreams are just full of weird animated bees and weird animated babies. And so they shared one of those dreams and then they came up with some ideas for movies. And somehow they got those movies made, even though it's one, one is a movie about a bee falling in love with a human woman, as far as I can tell. And the other one is about a, a human changeling baby, like a sentient baby who is a changeling from a baby corporation who needs to stop puppies from eradicating all human children. And who the f who thinks it's a good idea to make puppies the villains of a movie? Who greenlit this? Is what I want to know. And is it making money and is that money exclusively ironic? And what were they smoking and can I get some? <laughs> and so all this is to say, this is a horrible segue into what we're talking about today, which is a famous Nobel Prize winning uh, ethologist and behaviorist from the early 20th century who not only did groundbreaking work in bee behavior, but also was persecuted by the Nazis and survived a truly horrific time in human history. He so, would have loved B-movie. I think he I think he probably... It's hard to say what old Carl von Frisch, who's who we're talking about today, would have thought about the B-movie, but I, I doubt it's positive because does anyone like the B-movie? The internet does. The internet likes a lot of strange things, I've noticed. Yeah. I mean, that might not be the best gauge of what Carl von Frisch would like because the internet also kind of likes Nazis. Fair. That wasn't a joke. <laughs> that was a sad thing about reality. Reality sucks. Let's talk about the good old days where we, days where we punched the Nazis. <laughs> Let's talk about those days. So, back in the early 20th century, there was a guy named Karl von Frisch. He was Austrian and... Not to be confused with Australian. Not to be confused with Australian. Uh, he did a lot of groundbreaking work in bees. So why do we study bees? Why is it important? Why are bees an important thing to study? Why are they something that scientists around the turn of the last century would be interested in? Well, bees are very important for agriculture. I mean, they pollinate everything, and so that's why we're so concerned currently with bee population and colony collapse disorder. Because they, through their efforts, through you know collecting nectar and distributing pollen, they help pollinate a lot of our crops. I thought bees were just the things that stung you, and then you cry, and then your camp counselor gives you a popsicle. No, those are yellow jackets, and they're the devil. Okay, so so just an FYI, bees are wonderful 
saintly, adorable creatures who are fat and puffy and voiced by Jerry Springer, and they go around... Seinfeld. And voiced by Jerry Seinfeld, and they go around, and they screw with the flowers, and they spread the pollen, and they make the fruit grow, and everyone loves them. And they romance human women. And they romance human women. And Yellow Jackets are murder fiends who will mind control you and kill you with their poison stingers. We're going to do an episode on how all the ways wasps are so cool and also horrible. Wasps are the most terrifying. Uh, back, back, to, back to the thread. Like a lot of behaviorists and a lot of, I think, early, early animal scientists, mm-hmm. he just really liked animals. When he was younger, he had a menagerie, which I, I, th- I think is really fun. So he had a parakeet named Shaki. I think I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, that, I think that's pronounced Chachki. No, Chachki is something different. Are we sure? Yeah, Chachki is spelled differently and it's Yiddish. This is Shaki, and I don't know what it means. I don't know what that means either. It but might also be Yiddish? It could be. I don't know. We'll, we'll figure that. We won't figure that out. Okay. Um, he also had um, a pet chameleon, which I only know about because when I was writing my honors thesis, my old PI suggested we reference that chameleon pathfinding paper in my, in my honors thesis, despite the fact that it was still in the original German and I could not read it. Scientists can be super weird about that. Mm-hmm. He, he liked that paper because, I mean, it was about chameleons doing something vaguely relevant, but anyway. Oh my gosh, if you write an influential paper, or if you're one of the first people to describe a certain scientific technique or a certain animal, you are going to be cited on that paper for forever. I don't know how frequently cited the chameleon paper is. I only a lot of weird papers, I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you get the most citations in the medical sciences. Hmm. The paper with the most citations ever is the one that describes the methods of the Western blot. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. But bees. Bees. Also, there. If you if you go hunting around, there are a few famous photographs of Karl von Frisch in the traditional laser hosen. We should put this on the Twitter. We should. It's very. He's he seems like a cool guy. R.I.P. Um, did he have a beard? He did not have a beard. He did have cool glasses and very white hair. Ah, that's so weird. I feel like the early history of animal behavior is just the history of really awesome beards. That's fair. It wasn't the eighteen hundreds though. Oh, okay. Right, the 1800s was the era of beards. Very, very weird beards. This was the era of war trauma. Yeah. So in 1917, uh, Carl von Frisch set up an observation hive and a nearby bowl of honey and began marking bees that visited the honey. Why? Why? Well, that's a great question, Liz. Well, A, behaviorists are weird. But the goal was to uh, start just figuring out how bees forage and how they're, how they're so effective at finding sources of food and how they communicate with other bees to go to food sources, how they, how they, if they communicate, what sense they're using to find food sources, and how they, how they get there. What is to find the parameters on that behavior? How do you mark a bee without squishing it I think, or getting stung? Well, bees don't sting you very easily. I, and there's ways to like kind of pick them up that just kind of hold them. I, I imagine there's a technique to it, and they probably use some kind of. I know nowadays we use nail polish to mark insects. They probably had some kind of paint. Carl von Frisch, bee holder. Bee holder, bee painter. Badass. Yes. Another thing he was trying to do was also he did a lot of work in bee perception and insect perception. And so one of his early experiments was looking at the parameters on bee vision, what colors they see if they see color. For a long time, people didn't think that uh, insects could see any color. So he did actually a few notable experiments where he trained bees to go to bowls of sugar water and he matched those up with colored squares. And so he trained the bees to always go to the blue square. And so when he put clean water on the blue square, they would still go to the blue square versus the mm. other square, thus indicating that they can see colors in some wavelengths, including ultraviolet. 
So, in other words, bees have a superpower and can see colors we can't see. Mm-hmm. So, Dr. Von Friesch, she was grabbing these bees and putting nail polish on them and watching them. What, what was he hoping to get from this? Well, a lot of this work is originally exploratory. And so, as he was... So, in other words, he had no clue. I imagine he had some hypotheses. I don't know what exactly they were. Um, it was all kind of part of a larger, well, what's going on here? Can you imagine what his wife must have been thinking? Carl, what are you doing? <laughs> I'm putting nail polish on bees, honey. Carl, Carl, is that my nail polish? <laughs> Carl, it's World War One, and that's expensive. <laughs> honey, it's for science. <laughs> I'm painting the bees for science, honey. Carl. Carl. So as, as he was painting his bees and watching the bees, he noticed that when he put out sugar water and he could see one, he'd see one bee fly to the dish, he'd mark it, and then when it returned back to the hive, it would return later with a whole fleet of foragers. Foragers who had not been to this bowl of sugar before, newbies. And so subsequently, those newbies were able to fly the location of the sugar water without seeing anything other than this one bee. So what was that bee doing? Well, it was- The doing, Macarena. Yes. Wait, really? Close enough, it was doing a dance. So one bee flies off, the nail polish bee flies off, and it comes back with a bunch of friends. And just so the friend and the friends didn't know where it was, and it's not like bees can like say, hey buddy, there's some there's some sugar over here, unless they're Jerry Seinfeld. Mm-hmm. That sounds exactly like Jerry Seinfeld. And so but these bees were talking to each other. In some way, yes. It seemed like it. So Carl wasn't immediately convinced. I'm going to call him Carl. I feel like that's maybe a little disrespectful. He's but dead. I want to call him Carl because it's more dead. fun. That's nice, Liz. <laughs> Carl was a smart guy. And so he didn't immediately assume, oh, the bees are talking to one another. That was pretty out there for the time. And so, and so he thought, okay, so maybe they're using odor. Maybe they're just following the scent of the sugar water and they're using that to guide them. And so what he did, he shellacked some bees' odor glands. So he painted nail polish over their noses so that they couldn't smell things. Basically. But funny thing was, is that they could still get there. They could still figure it out. They could still find the sugar water. So it wasn't purely odor. Bees definitely use odor to find some things, but in this case, no, it was not necessary. And so he became more interested in this dance, that, uh, this performative behavior that, that the bees were doing for the other bees. And so what it what looks like- What do these dances look like? Okay, so in a vertical hive, you'll have one bee fly in and it'll be surrounded by just masses of other bees because there's a lot of bees in a hive. And so even though it's in complete darkness, these other bees will gather around it as it does something called either a round dance or a waggle dance. The round dance is, it's kind of, it's a hard shape to describe, it's basically round. But the waggle dance is a little bit more specific. It has... So they do these dances in the darkness of the hive? They do, and the other bees crowd around and put their antennas on them. Ah! So they can feel, they can feel the dance even if they can't see it. And so uh, the waggle dance is in a figure eight shape, and so there's a long stretch in the middle where the bee waggles back and forth, it vibrates its abdomen mm -hmm. as it runs, and then it does one loop around to the side, waggles back up, does a loop around to the other side. Mm. And the other bees feel this and seem to derive some kind of information from it. And so it's hard to figure out. So you'd, you'd see a bee doing that and you'd, you would think, well, I don't know what, what is it doing? It's... I would think it's some weird sex thing. Yeah, if, well, a lot of biologists would. Mm -hmm. That's not because biologists are perverted. It's just everything weird in nature is usually a sex thing. Biologists are pretty perverted. Okay, yeah. <laughs> um, and so he, he thought maybe, just maybe, this one time, it wasn't a sex thing, but rather maybe this was how they were communicating location to the other bees. 
What he did was he would move the food source around the hive to different locations at different times of day and look at the dances of the marked bees, which went to the source and came back. And so as he was he was looking at these dances, he realized that there was a few different styles of them. There's different directions they were doing and there was different and then there was the rhyme dance and the waggle dance, and so we didn't know what the relationship between those two were. And so his experiment went thusly. He realized that when the food sources were closer to the hive, the bees were doing the round dance. And as he moved the food source farther and farther away from the hive, it switched continuously over into the waggle dance. Mm. And so what, there's a bunch of experiments. Like there's a whole, I mean, it's a Nobel-worthy amount of work. We're summing up years and years of this weird guy staring at beehives mm -hmm. in a few sentences. And all of his, all of his uh, students as well. <laughs> Kids, remember, if you become a scientist, it's not that easy. You will spend 20 years looking at bees and making little check marks. Round or waggle, round or waggle, round. You're going to spend 20 years doing that. Mm -hmm. But it's all for the love of bees. Yeah, it's all for the love of bees, uh, not for the love of money. You will not be paid for this. You will not be paid for this. You will get stung, you will not be paid for this. <laughs> but yeah, so the round dance transformed into the waggle dance. And so through a num number of, actually, well, in really ingenious experiments that I'd love to get into, but their experiments and boy, oh boy, that would be a lot of talking. <laughs> um, what, what, he, what he learned was that the waggle dance was for food sources of over 100 meters away and that there's also a directionality component to them. And so there's a whole, it's incredible how he decoded this, but essentially the vertical direction of the waggling run in the dance whether or not they're running up or slightly to the side, in this in this figure eight dance on the vertical surface of the hive corresponds to the direction of the sun. Mm. And so the bees are taking the position of the sun into account, flying to the hive, doing their dance, and the other bees are taking that information and understanding, oh, because it's 60 degrees off-center, off of the vertical, the sun is 60 degrees off the vertical, or it's 60 degrees off the vertical of the sun. So the bees are dancing at angles, and the angle of the dance tells the other bees where the food is relative to the sun. Yes. So they're not only saying how far away the food is, but in what direction the food is. Yes. Yeah, and there's also yeah a distance component to the dance as well. The speed and the frequency at which they waggle, how how enthusiastically they waggle, tells the other bees how far away the food is. So if it's a long, fast waggling stretch, it's going to be a far food source. Mm. And what's even more incredible about the sun component is that the other bees are able to calculate uh, even when the sun moves. So you know when the sun moves across the sky during the day. The other bees are able to take that time into account as they're going to find the food source. Oh. Isn't that incredible? Uh, a bee would go out, find the food source, come back, do the dance, and then he would take the bees that watch the dance and just kind of hold on to them for a little while and then put them back out a few hours later when the sun had moved. And yet they still figured out where the source was. They they had some kind of internal clock that told them, oh, hey, the sun, it's been a few hours, the sun's going to move, I need to go in this direction. That's incredible. It's brilliant. So what did the scholarly community think? when Carl said, hey, guess what? Bees have a language. Bugs have a language. There was necessarily a bit of contention. And it took, it took a lot of years and a lot of experiments and a lot of 
people kind of warming up to it before they were like, yeah, you did a lot of work here. This is this is what's going on. And so it always take, it takes, I'm not going to say replicates because that's not quite right, but other work in the field looking at it and, and confirming it. Mm-hmm. And eventually people were so impressed by what Carl did that they gave him a Nobel Prize for animal behavior. And correct me if I'm wrong, but that's the only Nobel Prize for animal behavior research that has ever been granted. I didn't know that. And there's other parameters to the dance as well, such as like, so how often they'll dance um, relates to how abundant food sources. So if they're in an area that has very few food sources, then they're more likely to dance because they need to direct their foraging efforts. But if they're in an abundant area, they can just go out and find food. There's no need to do the dance. Also some caveats to how well the other bees understand the dance. It's not always completely precise. Um, there's a little bit of variation. And some of that is actually due to like accounting for electromagnetic fields which is very cool as well. So they'll look at uh, the bees will, the direction of their dance is slightly altered based on their own perception of electromagnetic fields. And so humans will say, oh, that's slightly off. When you, when you subtract the electromagnetic fields from the dance, it all makes sense. So what happens if you put a beehive into that place in Ithaca where the magnetic fields are screwy? I don't know, but let's try it. There's a place in Ithaca where magnetic fields are screwy and yep. birds fly into it and can't figure out how to leave. We're going to talk about that because um, it's full of ghosts. We're going to do an episode about that. Ghosts are not real. <laughs> bad scientists. Bad, bad, bad. So there, and there's some, there's some other um, really interesting aspects of Carl's life that sadly touch on how science is viewed through history. Yeah. So when the Nazis rose to power in the early 30s, Von Frisch was the subject of a series of anonymous personal attacks and accusations from peers and colleagues. And so because the Nazis were... Uh, Nazis. Because, yeah, because the Nazis were Nazis and they were concerned with the uh, Jewish heritage and uh, doing genealogies and making sure everyone was a pure blood, basically, they found that Von Frisch was, you know, he's one-eighth, one-eighth Jewish heritage. And so there's a lot of accusations slung around and they're trying to force him into resigning. The only reason he was able to retain his position was because some some of his dedicated colleagues put forth he was such an experienced and brilliant bee researcher and that there was a current infection going through bee populations called Nosema that was that was killing bees. And because the Nazis like they cared about agriculture, that was like one of the things oh it's one of the whole Agriculture is where you get those big healthy Aryan babies. You gotta feed them right. Yeah, it's one of those like folksy like, oh is this is we're going back to our traditional vocal roots. And t- not exactly, that's not exactly the way to say it, but it was one of those, like, this is what made Germany strong. This is very, like, it's a very, simp- not simplistic thing, but that's kind of that perception. If yeah. that makes sense, I- I'm not sure I'm explaining this properly. Well, long story short, the Nazis, not only were they evil, they were also hypocrites. Yeah. And so, fortunately, he was able to ride out the war, and all that was associated. Newsflash, Nazis suck. I-, I, mean, I mean that, people. Nazis suck. Please do not be a Nazi. I really wish we didn't have to say this. Yeah, it's 2017. But, and I think that also just goes to show that science is part of the world. And you can be a brilliant guy like Carl von Frisch, who is just this totally harmless guy. You know, his only weapon is the legions and legions of bees he has at his command. Of course. You know, he's, he, all he wants is to hang out with his beehives and ignore his wife and watch these insects dance. And yet he had to deal with all this dangerous crap that probably took away from a lot of his research. So who knows how much more research von Frisch could have done if it hadn't been for all this other stuff he had to deal with. Mm-hmm. And so I think Carl von Frisch, he did a lot of stuff 
for the field of behavior, but I think there's some interesting takeaways for the field of evolutionary biology and what he found. And I think one of the most important evolutionary takeaways is that you can't judge the complexity of an animal by taking a very human-centric view of the tree of life. We talked about this a little in our March of Progress episode, how sometimes people like to see evolution as a trend from the least sophisticated single-celled life forms to the most complex humans. And creatures like bees and beetles and other insects are viewed as less complex in a lot of ways because they're less like us. But bees have been around and evolving for much longer than human beings have and all those years of evolution have enabled them to develop some really complex traits that allow them to do these incredible things and allow them to function and thrive in the environments in which they live. It also goes to show that there's a lot of different ways to measure intelligence and the importance of being able to communicate with your fellows in insect evolution. So social behavior has evolved a lot of times in insects, and we'll probably get into that more in a later episode, but because insects live in these different evolutionary parameters, insects reproduce very quickly. As a whole, insects tend to live short lives, be small, and reproduce quickly. And so because of this, complex insect behavior looks very different than what we might term complex vertebrate behavior. But again, it's, it's still complex and very evolutionarily interesting. So, so, so what do you say was the big impact of von Frisch's work in the behavioral sciences? A lot of his methods and style of investigation are still, are still used today in a lot of behavioral research. And I don't know if he's necessarily the person that started the style of like analytical study of behavior, but as, an, as a Nobel Prize winner, he was certainly influential. And the work on, uh, work on honeybees and honeybee, dare I say cognition, that's kind of a loaded word in animal sciences, but it's still being studied today. I mean, there's like very respected professors at Cornell who I studied under, you just keep mentioning this. I just don't I have to bring it up every episode. I spend a lot of time getting this degree. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of respected professors there who are still who are still studying honeybee cognition because there's so much to be learned from and it. And there's also respected professors at places like Harvard and Yale. I guess. I guess they're respected. I, I guess Maybe. There's other schools. We kind of have to mention them just to be fair. We don't want them getting jealous. <laughs> But yeah, honeybees are still a model organism for a lot of behavioral research, and in general, they're used as a model for a lot of behavioral research, and what makes them so powerful is the fact that they are not small and simple necessarily, but they, I mean, they are smaller and simpler than a lot of vertebrates, so trying to tease apart human cognition is a huge task. That's very, very difficult, trying to, you know, study the system that is you, so there's necessarily roadblocks you run into. Whereas if you're looking at cognition or whatever, you know, whatever the, the nice, the PC version of cognition is, animal scientists, looking at that in insects allows you to really tease apart the fundamental components of what's going on. And that's incredibly valuable for behavioral research and for cognition research in general. And so in summary, I'm glad we got to talk about Carl von Frisch today. I think we've hopefully informed a few people about this guy and how his work was really weird, but how it influenced a lot of stuff in the sciences going forward. And I think we can all say that the world is a little better off because when Carl von Frisch heard to be or not to be, that is the question, he stood up and said, be, 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 be.